Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, this is Daniel Martin from In Doubt, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Bruce Clemenger. Bruce has been with us before. He works for EFC, and we have been able to chat with him before on politics and the gospel. He works alongside a lot of politicians and, and lawyers in Ottawa, providing counsel and providing advice and a biblical voice in that area. And he goes into a little bit of that in the episode. We're excited to have him joining us today, talking about his new book, which is going to be looking at some of the history of how we got to where we are politically in Canada and what that means for us as Christians. So I hope you find this interesting. It's definitely reaching for the top shelf here. So maybe you have to listen to it one or two times. If you give it time and you work through it, it'll be a very worth it episode for you to be a part of. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin, and today I'm joined by Bruce Clemenger. And if you don't remember Bruce, we chatted actually a while back. Uh, we talked in early February, I believe, and I had this pulled up. It's something like episode 258. So if you want to go back and hear part one of our discussion, you can go back and hear uh, Bruce and I talking a little bit about church and politics. And we're going to do some more of that today as we talk about his new book that is already out. Bruce, Good to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Good to be with you. It's good to be with you. Thanks again for joining us. I really enjoyed our conversation last time, and I'm definitely uh, looking forward to chatting today. How are things going for you in eastern Canada? Well, we're starting to get a bit of winter, so the snow is starting to come. We're supposed to get a big snowfall in the next couple of days, so yeah, it's Canada. It is Canada. And so, Bruce, if you could let our, our audience know a little bit about what you do, because you have a very interesting organization that has a lot of, you know, connections in Ottawa and in government and things. So why don't you just explain a little bit about what you're doing out east? Sure. Um, I'm uh, serve as president of the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. We're a national association of uh, evangelical institutions and ministry organizations and churches. Our denominations range from, you know, the Pentecostal through the you know, Salvation Army through to Mennonite and Reform and so on. Uh, about 47 denominations. We have uh, 33 higher education institutions. So Trinity Western, uh, Columbia, uh, be some of the ones in, in BC, uh, Briarcrest in Saskatchewan, uh, Ambrose, uh, Tyndale, and so on. About 13 of them are seminaries. And then we have a number of organizations, uh, some internationally based World Vision, Samaritan's First, Compassion, some of the domestic, InterVarsity, Power to Change. Youth for Christ, those kind of groupings. So we provide a platform which brings together the leadership uh, of those organizations together. We do a lot of work on uh, developing partnerships, strategic partnerships. Uh, we do a lot of work on our research, uh, do primary research and uh, do major studies. We're doing one in small church, another one on family faith formation, due out next couple of months. And then we're probably best known, we have magazine Faith Today, Love is Moving, and a number of podcasts and so on. And then what we're probably best known for is our office in Ottawa, where we have our Center of Faith and Public Life. And there we regularly engage in the courts and on Parliament Hill on a variety of issues. So right now, a lot of our uh, work's on the area of hasten death, assisted suicide, or what's called medical assistance in dying. 
and uh, human trafficking, um, pornography, prostitution, those kind of issues. So that's really who we are, what we do. That's so good. I want to talk about your new book that's coming out, The New Orthodoxy, Canada's Emerging Civil Religion. And you've mentioned that it examines the founding non-secretarian approach to Canadian statecraft that accommodated religious and cultural diversity. Now, what what is statecraft? What are you kind of talking about in this book? And then maybe we can get into this here because I like where you're going with this writing. Uh, you're looking at the 1960s. You're looking at how Canada has arrived, kind of where it is today on the the promise of political liberalism that um, you know, this, this philosophy that had emerged and, and it was going to bring about the good life. If you could walk us through maybe a little bit what the book's about, but then I want to take some time and hear some of the history of where it began, right? This kind of shift in Canada and then how it has emerged now because I think that's super important. I think it's important for our listeners to hear what pluralism is and maybe spend some time just chewing on that. So tell us a little bit about the book, why you're writing it, and then let's talk about pluralism. Sure. Um, up until 1960s, Canada was dominated by you know, Christian faith. In the late 40s, somewhat 67% of Canadians, 67%, so that's two-thirds, attended church weekly. Right? Now We're now down 8 7%, but back then, uh, the majority of Canadians attended. Uh, we had the duality of uh, predominantly Catholic Quebec and kind of Protestant rest of Canada. You know, at Confederation, there were, you know, three of the provinces were pretty well Protestant, and the fourth, uh, Quebec, was was francophone, was French and Catholic. So you had that that kind of that basic duality. And yet, even though there's that duality in the Constitution, British North America Act 1867, there's no mention of God. Basically, it was a dry, boring contract between four parties, the four provinces at that time, to figure out you know what would be federal, what would be provincial. But the background culture was uh, this kind of predominance of Christianity. And that's and and during that time, I mean, the evidence of it, just think of any city you go to in, in Canada pretty well. And uh, you know, you'll find usually at the downtown core, there's a bunch of big stone churches, right? There's Catholic, there's Anglican, there's Presbyterian, there's Baptist. I mean, I remember being in Brockville recently, and there's kind of a, a bit of a hill overlooking the river, you know, across the waters of the U.S., and there's kind of a, a kind of a big building, a justice building, and surrounded it in a horseshoe are churches. And so they were, as church historians will talk about, the unofficial establishment. So none of these churches had were established. We didn't have a state church, uh, as they do in the U.K., but the churches played the role of prophet. So led moral crusades, you know, against drinking or whatever. They were they were the priests. So at any formal function, you had someone in a collar, you know, Christian of some tradition, you know, blessing the the activities with prayer or you know, adjudicating and so on. And then a pastor, um, you know, uh, social welfare or filling the gaps of programs. Or before we had social programs, the churches provided a lot of those. Or it was people from churches that formed societies built hospitals and, you know, cared for vulnerable persons. And many would say that the, and the church became the conscience of the nation. So it was not established. It was an unestablished uh, presence, but they were basically the conscience of the nation and would always be consulted and would have influence that way. That influence began to wane in the 1960s. I mean, as early as 1960, actually, the Bill of Rights 
brought in by Prime Minister Diefenbaker at that time, referred to Canada as a Christian nation. By the end of that decade, as one church historian said, it was kind of almost a memory. Rapid secularization, the quiet revolution in Quebec, uh, rest of Canada took a couple of decades. But uh, in 1967, you know, the 100th anniversary of Canada's formation, they had scripture reading and hymns sung on Parliament Hill. So you still had the vestiges of that kind of Christian background, but that began to erode fairly quickly and the church has lost influence. And so in a sense, in the first hundred years or so, there was the, the duality of Catholic and Protestant, you know, Protestant made up of the Baptists, the Lutherans, the United and so on, Presbyterian, Anglican, and, and then the Catholic. And so we have a strong tradition in Canada. Our prime ministers don't wear their religion on sleeve, not like you have the U.S. presidents. Because I think if you were too Catholic or you were too Anglican, you would isolate part of the, a significant part of the population. So the prime ministers and in statecraft, they tried to accommodate both perspectives the best they could. And, and so there was kind of a Christian pluralism at play. Well, in the 1960s, as other faith groups grew in size, then you shifted more from a Christian pluralism to a kind of interfaith pluralism. Uh, and then by the late 60s, early 70s, especially as we got into debate over uh, UN Declaration of Human Rights and the issue of a Charter of Rights and Freedoms in Canada, the question is, do you need a theological premise? So do you need to anchor those human rights in some idea of natural law or some idea of God, or can it be freestanding and rooted in some type of humanistic principles? And so even in, in 1982 with the Charter, we ended up, uh, EFC, along with Catholic bishops and others, lobbied hard for a theological presence so that the uh, a basis, premise of the Charter. So it, it begins at where is Canada was found on principles that recognize the supremacy of God and rule of law. So that's there. Uh, but basically, Canada shifted to more of a secular state. And so uh, laws could not be rooted or based on any type of uh, Christian or sectarian, as they would call it then, sectarian premise, but had to be non-sectarian. So governments had to be fair to all religious expressions, not uh, privilege one over the other. So an example is that was, we used to have a thing called the Lord's Day Act, which basically forced large retail outlets to close on Sundays, the Lord's Day. And the court struck that down, said you can't call it a Lord's Day Act because that's a theological argument for, for the law. Arguably, you could have a common pause day. So if you want to give everyone, majority of society, a, a day off, you could have a common pause day, and that could be Sunday. But the idea of rooting the law in a religious or a theological premise, they said that's contrary to secularism. And specifically, it sounds like rooting it in one theological premise, because you know, they would argue, well, what do you do with all the other, we have lots of Sikhs in Canada and Hindus, and, and to be fair, they want to be fair to everyone, correct? Yeah, that's right. And so that's what non-sectarian, so a sect would be Catholic or to be a, a denomination or it'd be Jewish, it'd be is, Islamic, uh, Sikh, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, or atheist agnostic. Uh, they broaden it to include freedom of conscience issues. So those that wouldn't claim a religious premise, but still advocate out of a worldview or a philosophical moral foundation. And so that's where the idea of non-sectarian came from. So the government would be fair. Uh, in Canada, we've never had debates over whether there should be government funding for faith-based organizations uh, working for the public good. Uh, in the U.S., they have those debates. Uh, in Canada, we, we're starting to have them a bit now, but we never we didn't in the past because we didn't have a separation of church and state the way the U.S. did. So the governments and uh, religious actors would interact. So Salvation Army is, I think, the largest non-governmental 
a provider in Canada, a social service provider, and yet it's a, it's a Christian denomination. And a, a lot of government money flows to the Salvation Army. Now, they don't, they don't do proselytization or they don't you know, promote Christianity through that, but they are undertaking projects for the common good. So a lot of inner city missions, a lot of our foreign relief organizations uh, receive government funding. There's no barrier to that in Canada. So there was actually a lot of cooperation between the state and religious organizations. But the premise always would be that the government would treat each one fairly and they would uh, assign the funding based on the outcomes of the projects, not on the identity of the organization receiving the funding. So non-sectarian, that's what it means. The sect, you know, the, the church, the religious beliefs, uh, the atheist beliefs or whatever of the actor, the government should be indifferent towards those. Right. So best as you can, just quickly, define this for me then. Give me an easy definition of pluralism and then give me uh, an easy definition of liberalism. How are those different? Sure. Well, pluralism it just means that in whatever you're talking about, there's a plurality of options. So I, I distinguish between three types of pluralism. Uh, one is what I call directional. Kids call it religious, but directional, I think, is uh, more accurate when referring to atheism, agnosticism, and so on. And the idea is that we're all oriented, directed towards something. You know, there's an old song, you know, you've got to serve somebody, Bob Dylan, right? And according to Romans, that's true, right? You're either serving Romans 1, you're either serving God or an alternative. And uh, so I talk about directional pluralism. What are you oriented towards? Are you oriented towards God or some other God, small g God, or some other set of ideals or principles or ideology, philosophy, uh, whatever you want to call it? Uh, and then there's contextual pluralism. So often people call it cultural. I would call it contextual because it, in a sense, contextualizes your direction. So you believe in God, and then that means you do family a certain way, and you do uh, work and, and so on. There, You flesh it out in terms of certain rights or practices and, and the way you unfold your life. And so, you know, Genesis 1, you know, be fruitful, multiply. You know, it's how we worked out our life in the frame of understanding, believing in God and what we believe he would have us to do. And then there's structural. So there's, you know, we have schools, we have churches, we have states, governments, we have families, we have all these different kind of institutions. And those are, are spheres of uh, ways of engaging. And, uh, and those three things are different. So, you know, you could have a Christian family in Indonesia which kind of functions slightly different than a Christian family in Canada. So those are three separate things. So if you go, go into quickly into church and state kind of things, and structurally, the church as, you know, the local church, the organization that's, you know, a charitable organization, et cetera, et cetera, meets in a building. Talk about institutional church. It's separate from the state. So the church and state can be distinguished. Uh, they each have their own responsibilities, but their own responsibilities overlap. So churches usually uh, have things to say to government when they talk about justice or peace or mercy or religious freedom, those kind of things. And states have things to say to churches about building codes and employment contracts and, you know, things that are, you know, their jurisdiction. So there's kind of an overlapping, but you can kind of distinguish between church and state. I don't think you can distinguish between faith and politics. I think that because of that directional idea, every cultural expression and every institution has a faith dimension. And so that's where I disagree. Often the secularist approach would argue that uh, there's no religious influence whatsoever. Religion should be privatized and secular somehow independent or neutral. I would say no. 
the, the secularist approach has its own set of values. I call it a creed. And so in politics, no matter what party you're from or what your background is, there's going to be some set of values or principles that animate you as a politician. And that's when we look to vote for candidates. We should try to understand uh, what their direction is and what the basic principles and values that they adhere to. And my argument is that too often we think that somehow the state, when it's being non-sectarian, therefore it means it's neutral. And I think no, uh, even when it tries to be non-sectarian, it's, it's formed around some set of principles or values. So for us, framed around, say, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The question is, how are those interpreted and applied? And so the state does have a bias. It does have a set of principles that guides it. And I think that's where it's incumbent upon us as citizens to engage in a conversation about what, what are those principles, what are those norms, those values that guide the state. And, and can we come up with principles and values that enable us to flourish? So get to liberalism then. Liberalism emerged actually in, out of the religious wars in Europe. And the idea there's different religious states, you know, uh, oriented around different, you know, whether Catholic or some type of Protestant vision, uh, understanding of theology, uh, they were at war with one another. And so the question is, how can you somehow separate the statecraft or the business of the state from a specific religious tradition, a specific Christian tradition, so there could be peace and harmony? So that every time you have a change of kings, whether the king was Catholic or Anglican, that you'd have a lot of uh, hostility and persecution. So the idea was, can we find an alternative basis for a state? And what that requires us to do is come up with some principles that will guide uh, the decision-making process of the state that isn't rooted only in one of the various sects or various religions that play within the society. So liberalism, its focus is usually on the individual freedom and that they try to maximize individual freedom as much as they can, uh, the limit being you're not harming others in the exercise of your freedom. So liberal is freedom. So democracy means basically, you know, everyone's treated equally in terms of citizenship in a very brief way, doing a lot of, you know, a lot more nuance required. But basically, we all have an equal vote and we can vote for the candidate of our choice and the majority in a sense prevails. Liberalism binds democracy by saying they want to protect the individual and communities over against the will of majority. And so we have things like sets of human rights codes, uh, and so on that would protect minority or individual interest over against the overreach of the state. And that's really what the Charter of Rights and Freedoms does. It protects individuals over against the over overreaching of the state. Yeah, and no matter what the background is, because it, it occurs to me right now, you, like, and you, this is getting back to what you said earlier with the pluralism. When politicians would walk into the, the courtrooms, when they would walk into the House of Commons, right, they are saying that they are religiously neutral. But underneath, right, well, that person's still a Christian. That person's still a Jew. So they're still walking in with that worldview and that belief system and then arguing in the, in the public square. Well, sure. But that belief system then is usually articulated further nuanced in the party they choose to align themselves with. And so there's kind of an ideological difference between the liberals, the NDP, the bloc, the Greens, the conservatives, right? And so you can be a Christian and, and function in different parties, depending on how you work your faith out in that political sense. And so it's more multi-layered than, than you'd think. And that's where the contextual side comes, right? So someone may claim to be, um, could be a Muslim, and you have Muslims in several different political parties. And so there's the same person relying on the same understanding of, or they're uh, basing their life on the Quran 
and their Islamic beliefs can still find themselves aligning themselves with different political party. So that's where you have the contextualization differs. But the point is that not just the individual members of parliament, but the state itself, through the, the lens of the, say, the Charter Rights and Freedoms, there are a set of principles. And it, the focus is on individual rights and not necessarily group rights. And, and there's a certain balancing of how those rights are articulated and understood. And that's where I think the interesting thing, there's, there's one guy described it as um, these core principles, like something like the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, is it established through a convergence. So you have all different people of different faith perspectives, including those with no specific faith perspective, atheists, agnostics, the nuns we hear about. And they come together and they agree that, yes, you know, uh, freedom of conscience is important for all of us. And yes, uh, respect for diversity is important. Respect for your neighbor. Uh, human dignity is important. And so we converge on a series of principles and we so we embed those in, say, something like the Charter Rights and Freedoms. And so when the Charter Rights and Freedoms is being interpreted by courts, they have to think in terms of the various actors in Canada who lend their support to the Charter and try to come up with an interpretation that that accommodates as best they can the plurality of views that came together in that convergence. The other way to understand is there's a consensus. So people agree on a set of principles, but then the principles are seen to be somehow freestanding and universal. And, and that's where and those principles, when they're interpreted, then begin to can sometimes conflict with some of the animating religious groups that help form the consensus in the first place. Canada was kind of based on the premises of equal respect and of freedom of conscience. And when the government starts adding to those basic premises, uh, things like promotion of individual autonomy or a strong sense of, kind of social cohesion, that's when they could run afoul of those various directional beliefs that help shape Canada in the first place. And that's where I think we're, we're starting to get tensions. Uh, so back in 1993, go back to where we started beginning with uh, MAID or euthanasia, assisted suicide, hasten death is what we usually refer to it as. 1993, there's a Supreme Court case, and we were involved with the Catholic bishops, and we argued that one of those basic underlying principles of Canadian society was the sanctity of human life. And, and uh, that's evidenced in our healthcare system, um, our welfare system, uh, that we actually believe that everyone has the dignity of all people, and life was something to be protected and enhanced and preserved. And so they bought a five to four. They said, yes, that was one of the underlying principles, and any bending on the prohibition against assisting suicide would undermine the sanctity of human life. Fast forward to 2015, the Supreme Court, and this time 9 nothing. they said in some cases, they believed human autonomy uh, should trump the sanctity of human life. So there's some situations where we should allow exceptions to the universal ban on assisted suicide because of individual autonomy. And what we've seen is since 2015, and there's legislation subsequent that you could access euthanasia, government-provided euthanasia or assisted suicide, if, you're, if your death was reasonably foreseeable and uh, you're in dire circumstances. Well, that's been expanded now to your death doesn't have to be uh, reasonably foreseeable. If you have a severe disability or severe illness, then you'd qualify. And now in March, it's going to extend to people whose only underlying condition is mental health. And again, this is, again, this kind of continued push into court in 2015. One person on the other side of the issue argued that if you concede that human autonomy will trump sink to human life in that sense, in certain circumstances, there's no barrier you can put to that. 
once you allow assisted suicide, any hurdle you seek to use to break assisted suicide will fall under the argument of human autonomy, if, if human autonomy becomes your dominant principle. So I think that's what's basically happening. Wow. Yeah. Well, so then just let me ask you this, because we are out of time, but that sounds like dire circumstances. This sounds like a difficult place. You're doing some difficult work here. How can we as Christians have hope in such a secular state? Maybe just close us out with that. Like, where is our hope in that? Well, um, you know, there, there's really two approaches here we've outlined. One is the non-sectarian, where government doesn't take sides. And when they look at law and public policy, they have to do so, keeping in mind the diversity of what is Canada and and make sure they're not privileging one kind of set of values over another the best they can based on the, the consensus or the convergence. Uh, the other one is they become more secularist and they begin, in a sense, picking sides amongst the the various worldviews or moral doctrines in society and begin championing one of the other. So I think what we need to be, be about is advocating to go back and uh, reinforce Canada being a non-sectarian place. So uh, open pluralism, they call it. And so that's where people of whatever faith uh, have the freedom to live out their lives according to faith, both in private, but also publicly, and engage in the public square authentically um, out of their faith perspective uh, in pursuit of the, the public good, uh, rather than the government taking sides and like the Canada Summer Jobs situation where they developed an association where you had to sign off in certain set of values to get funding. Well, uh, you know, that's where they're, they're imposing a certain set of values on uh, that they didn't impose before. And that then isolates um, a number of groups within Canada who don't agree with the values of the current government. And, and deep down below that, it's, it's grasping the idea that we are citizens in a democracy. We have the freedom and, in a sense, the, I think the responsibility to engage. And it's not just voting every several years when there's an election, but it's engaging with your member of parliament, engage with candidates, find out you know, what animates them. Why do they get involved in politics in the first place? Build that relationship. And then when tough issues come along, come to them and say, okay, from my, from my understanding of life, from my set of beliefs, I think we should be promoting human dignity. We should be promoting respect for, you know, on and on and on. And, and uh, engage in those conversations and be persuasive. Because I think a lot of, a lot of MPs, if you bring the, the arguments well and you articulate them well, at least you will have a hearing. I think that's what our task is to bear that public witness. Absolutely. And it comes through small conversations and small discussions and conversations like we had today. And so, Bruce, yep. thanks again for being on the program. Thank you for joining us and enlightening us with that. You know, there's a lot there. I think we'll have to give this, you know, a listen or two. Uh, but I think these ideas, once we like take them and understand them, we'll know better how to intervene and, and interact with our culture. So again, thank you for being on the program. And yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks again, Bruce, for being on the program. It's always a pleasure, and your knowledge is so vast. I just really appreciate the ways that you're able to make that knowledge accessible to us. And it's just encouraging also to hear the work that you're doing. And so thank you for that. Bless you. And, you know, I hope this episode was helpful to all you listeners as well. So with that, thank you for listening. All the best. for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
Hey, this is Daniel Markin from In Doubt, and I'm really thrilled to share that this month, we welcome Andrew Marcus as a host and director of In Doubt. Andrew's an award-winning singer-songwriter and acclaimed worship leader and pastor, and he's excited to lead the In Doubt team, launch new innovative programs, and engage a network of Christian leaders and experts to help speak the truths of God's Word into the challenges of faith faced by young adults every single day. Stay tuned to hear more in the coming weeks ahead.